lectures on uh, the afterlife. This particular, this particular class is entitled, What Does It Mean to Die? So before we begin, there is an article uh, in the latest uh, Reader's Digest that I'd like to read to you, if you haven't read it already. Uh, not the whole, I'm not going to read the whole article, obviously, but just the first part of it. It reads like this. In the summer of 1991, Pam Reynolds learned she had a life-threatening bulge in an artery in her brain. Neurosurgeon Robert Spetzler, director of the Barrow Neurological Institute of Phoenix, told the 35-year-old Atlanta mother of three that in order to operate, he would have to stop her heart. During that time, her brain function would cease. By all clinical measures, she would be dead for up, up to an hour. While Reynolds was under anesthesia, leads from a machine that admitted a clicking sound were plugged into her ears to gauge her brainstem function. The brainstem play, plays a part in controlling hearing as well as other involuntary activities. Additional instruments tracked heartbeat, breathing, temperature, and other vital signs. Her limbs were restrained, her eyes were lubricated, and then taped shut. As Spetzler powered up the surgical saw to open the patient's skull, something occurred that never registered on any sophisticated monitoring devices. Reynolds felt herself pop out of her body. From a vantage point just above Spetzler's, Spetzler's shoulders, she looked down on the operation. She saw Spetzler holding something that resembled an electric toothbrush. A female voice complained that the patient's blood vessels were too small. It appeared to Reynolds that they were about to operate on her groin. That couldn't be right, she thought. This is brain surgery. Reynolds then assumed that whatever they were doing inside her skull had triggered a hallucination. But even though her eyes and ears were effectively sealed shut, what she perceived was actually happening. The surgical saw did resemble the electric, an electric toothbrush. Surgeons were indeed working on her groin. Catheters had to be threaded up to her heart to connect to a heart-lung machine. Spetzler gave the order to bring down Reynolds to a standstill, draining the blood from her body. By every reading of every instrument, life left Reynolds' body, and she found herself traveling down a tunnel toward a light. At its end, she saw her long-dead grandmother, relatives, and friends. Time seemed to stop. Then an uncle led her back to her body and instructed her to return. It felt like plunging into a pool of ice water. After she came to, Reynolds told Spetzler all that she had seen and experienced. You are way out of my area of expertise, Spetzler said, and 12 years later, he still doesn't know what to make of it. That's popular reading. In a more sophisticated publication entitled Lancet, which is a, a medical, um, art, uh, which is a medical magazine or a journal, which has uh, different papers, different scientific articles in it, uh, there was an article that was done uh, to study NDEs. What I just read is an experience called near-death experience. The term was coined by a professor by the name of Raymond Moody in 1975. These people printed an article, a scientific study, where they tested 344 patients that experienced cardiac arrest. And they printed their results. And in the middle of this article, and all the, uh, all the methods that were used and the conclusions that they had, there's a story from a nurse. Um, I guess I can read this too. Uh, during a night shift, this is the nurse talking. Okay, during a night shift, 
An ambulance brings in a 44-year-old cyanotic comatose man into coronary care unit. He has been found about an hour before in the meadow of bypassers by. After admission, he receives artificial respiration without intubation while heart massage and defibrillation are also applied. When we want to intubate the patient, he turns out to have dentures in his mouth. So I guess intubation is not possible without taking out the dentures, right? I remove these upper dentures and put them into, onto the crash cart. Meanwhile, we continue extensive CPR. After about an hour and a half, the patient has sufficient heart rhythm and blood pressure, but he is still ventilated and intubated and is still comatose. Now the patient was completely out. He is transferred to intensive care until the unit, uh, until unit to continue the necessary artificial respiration. Only after more than a week do I meet again with the patient, who by now is back in the cardiac ward. I distribute his medication. The moment he sees me, he says, oh, that nurse knows where my dentures are. I am very surprised. Then he elucidates, yes, you were there when I was brought into the hospital and you took my dentures out of my mouth and put them onto that car. It had all these bottles on it and there was the, sli the, the sliding drawer underneath and there you put my teeth. I was especially amazed, the nurse is talking, because I remembered this happening while the man was in deep coma and in the process of CPR. When I asked further, it appeared that the man had seen himself lying in a bed, then he that he perceived from above how nurses and doctors had been busy with CPR. He was also able to describe correctly and in detail the small room in which he had been resuscitated as well as the appearance of those present like him. At the time that he observed the situation, he had been very afraid that we would stop CPR and that he would die. And it is true that we had been very negative about the patient's prognosis due to very poor medical condition when admitted. The patient tells me that he had desperately and unsuccessfully tried to make it clear to us that he was still alive and that he would like to continue CPR. He is deeply impressed by his experience and says he's no longer afraid of death. Four weeks later, he left the hospital as a healthy man. That's the story that she tells. Now, there are hundreds of stories like this, thousands of stories of people who experienced cardiac arrest, who were comatose, who were brain dead, and they experienced themselves above their body. These cases are suggestive of life after death. But before we deal with the question about life after death, we have to ask ourselves, why are we at this class? No doubt, some people are here at the class because they're interested in the discussion and they're interested in what Judaism has to say about life after death. <clears throat> However, most of us came for a different reason. You know that even people who are materialists, meaning that they don't believe in life after death. Even they strive to make sure that there's some remnant left of themselves. Whether it be some kind of accomplishment, whether it be writing a book, or erecting a monument, or something. They strive to make sure that there's something left of themselves. Why is it so? We like to also believe that we are going to exist after we quote-unquote die. Right? And the reason why we are here tonight is because we want to hear that yes, it's true. We are going to live after we die. Why is it that we are so interested in making sure that we live after we die? And the answer is, is because if we don't live after we die, then we don't matter. Then nothing matters. 
It doesn't matter what we do, and it doesn't matter what we say or how we act or what happens to us. Eventually, we all die anyway, and we cease to exist. And the reason why we want to make sure that there's a part of us left is because deep down inside, we want to know that we matter. We want to know that we make a difference. That is, by the way, the concept of reward and punishment in Judaism. If there is no reward and punishment, that means that we don't matter. If one brings up a child, and the child does something right, and one smiles at one's child and says, I'm very happy that you did that. That's a reward. If a child does something wrong, and one frowns, that's a punishment. If one does not react to the child's actions, then one is giving the message to the child that you don't matter. I don't care. It makes no difference to me what you do. Whether you behave or you don't behave. Whether you exist or you don't exist. doesn't matter to me. There is no worse of punishment. There is no worse of emotional pain than one can suffer than when he gets the message that somebody who supposedly cares about him thinks that they don't matter. My teacher once said that a child would rather be beaten than to understand that he doesn't matter. That it doesn't make any difference what he does. So in Judaism, there is a concept of reward and punishment because God cares what we do. God cares about our actions. We make a difference and we matter. And God says that what you do, I pay attention to and I'm gonna make sure that you accomplish because I care, because you make a difference. And the only way that, that is possible is if we presuppose the fact that we exist after we die. Because if we don't exist after we die, then it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. So the reason why we are here tonight is because we want to know that we matter. Okay. So the questions that we have to ask ourselves at first, at least I think, in this discussion is, or are, is number one, what does Judaism have to say about the afterlife? What happens to us when we die? Number two is, are these stories true? The stories that we just read, are they true? Number three is, are they consistent with the Jewish view? Right? Does the Jewish view, the tradition that we have for the past 3,300 years, is it consistent with these stories? And question number four is, does it matter if it's consistent with these stories? Is it relevant or not? But before we tackle these questions, we need an introduction. And the introduction also, we have to ask ourselves a few questions too. And that is, where are we? As we, we see ourselves and we know ourselves, right? But the question is, where are we? Where do we find ourselves? In which environment are we in? As, okay, question number two is, who are we? Who is it that we are? We know ourselves to be ourselves, whoever that is that we are. What defines me as being me? What makes me unique from everybody else and from everything else? Who am I? That's question number two. 
And question number three is, what do we mean by life? When we say that somebody is alive, what do we mean by that? What does life mean? And question number four is, what do we mean by death? So if we know who we are, where we are, and it, what is it that we're doing, in other words, how we're functioning, then we can understand what does it mean, or what do we mean when we say that we are going to die. When we understand that, then we can discuss what is it that we're going to experience when we actually do die. So the first question is, where are we? So by observation, by sensory observation, with our eyes, with our touch, and with all our other senses, we could tell that we are in a material universe. Right? This material universe contains galaxies and solar systems and stars and planets. And we find ourselves on the planet Earth with valleys and mountainous ranges and oceans and rivers, clouds, whatever it is. We have technological development, we have buildings and cars and PDAs, and there's food, there's pizza, there's ice cream. We find ourselves in a material universe that is comprised of many elements and many different types of entities. But that's not the only place that we are in. By tradition, by Jewish tradition, Jewish understanding is that there is also a spiritual universe just as complicated, just as complex, just as detailed as the universe that we find ourselves in, the material universe. But not only is the spiritual universe an independent entity, but it's also a parallel universe. In other words, the universe that we live in here, the world that we find ourselves in, there's another par parallel existence. This existence cannot be seen. It cannot be perceived by the senses. We can't touch it, we can't smell it, we can't taste it, we can't see it. It's, it's not there. Yes? How do you know it's there? Jewish tradition. This presentation is a presentation of what does the Jewish tradition, which was given us at Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago, have to say about the afterlife. So the objective is not to prove uh, all the points in the presentation, but to present the picture of you of how we see ourselves and what happens to us when we die. So Jewish tradition says that there is a parallel universe, a spiritual universe, which we cannot see. The, uh, I, I, my, my, my teacher said that the first cosmonaut who went into uh, space said that I have been around the world many times and I have never seen God. And he said, of course you never saw God. Because God cannot be seen with the, with the senses. God is not in the material universe. The same way that the physical universe is governed by laws, for example, laws of gravity, laws of, of force, cause and effect. When I turn on the light switch, the lights turn on. There are certain laws which govern all the entities that, that, that we, the whole world that we live in. So too, this spiritual universe has the same laws. It has the same nature. Not the same, but it has its own different laws by which it's governed. And there are three main entities which are found in this universe. One entity is called a koach, which is literally translated as a force. Second entity is called a malach, 
which is translated as an angel. And the third entity is called Anishama, which is a soul. Now there's one catch. The material and the spiritual universe are connected. They're not independent. They're connected to each other. How? I don't know. But the mystical writings say that the way that they're connected is like a chain. You know, like a, like a keychain to a key. These two universes are connected. But not only are they connected, but the physical universe that we find ourselves in is a manifestation of a spiritual universe. In other words, for this chair, there is, this chair is a physical manifestation of something else that exists up high that's spiritual. This something else is called the first element that we said, is the koach, is the force. There's a force that exists, and that force is manifested in a chair. And to make sure that the chair is there, the second element comes into play, that's called a malach, an angel. Now we don't know what these things mean, we can't sense them, we can't see them, but in concept, that's what they are. The main point is, is that there is a connection between this physical world and the spiritual world. So that's where we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in, in the two universes, which are really one. A spiritual and a physical one. And we, of course, can only see one of them. We can only see the manifestation of the other. Perhaps maybe there are some other elements that we can sense of the other one when we look at people and how they act, but we can't really see it or sense it in any way. So that answers the first question. That's where we are. Second question is, who are we? Who are we? The answer to that is that we are a body and a soul. We are a combination of both. The body being the material, the physical, part of the physical universe, and the soul being part of the spiritual universe. Now the question we might ask ourselves is, why do we need to be this way? Why do we need to be a combination of a body and a soul? So the answer is as follows. What is a body and a soul? This chair, for example, we'll use this, this chair has, has the, uh, the muzzle of being used as an example in this, in this presentation. This chair, for example, does it have free choice? Is it an independent entity of itself? Well, somebody made it, somebody fashioned it. And if nobody fashioned it, it wouldn't exist. It's like a robot, it's like a tree, it's like a germ. That's, that, that's what it is. It has no choice, it has nothing. It's a chair. A body, physical body, is a creation of God. It's also just like a chair, a little bit more, albeit it's a little more complicated, but it's still just an entity that wouldn't be there if God didn't create it. It's not independent of itself, it's just a creation. The soul is also the same thing. The soul is just a spiritual entity, right? So it's not a physical thing, but it's a spiritual thing. God created it, and it doesn't have its own independent existence. And if we look at ourselves, how do we refer to ourselves? We have a whole body, we have a circulatory system, we have a, a nervous system, we have a pulmonary system, right? We have, we have skin, we have eyes. How do we refer to ourselves? What do we say when we have a headache? My head hurts me. That's what we say. My legs hurt me. The statement, my legs hurt me, presupposes that there is a me 
and there are legs that belong to me, and those legs which belong to me hurt. That means that we say with our own mouths that our legs are not ourselves, our bodies are not ourselves. And we say the same thing by our minds. I have a beautiful mind, or I have a bad mind. Um, we describe ourselves in terms, or the parts that we, that we would think are ourselves, we describe them as being outside of ourselves. Right? So that means that's not us. Because it can't be us. Because all it is is just a chair. A body is just a chair. What makes us different, I'm sorry? What makes us different is, is that we are a combination of a physical and a spiritual. Now why does that make us different? The answer is as follows, because the body, different from uh, everything else, unique. I don't mean different, I mean unique, sorry. Um, the body is a physical thing. So naturally, it's drawn to the physical. The body wants to eat, it wants to sleep, it wants to whatever, eat ice cream, right? The soul is a spiritual entity. It's purely intellectual. It doesn't want any of these things. It wants to go to the spiritual world. It wants to be with God or whatever, whatever that is. So what happens is, is when there's a combination of the two, of the soul and the body, there's a tension that's created. That tension pulls, right? The tension is because there's a pulling from each end. The body says, I want to go to sleep. The soul says, no, I want to study. I want to pray, whatever. And the body says, I want ice cream. There's a tension. It pulls at either end. That facilitates free choice. We become a being which has the ability to choose. We stand at the crossroads in the middle between our physical selves and our spiritual selves, which is not us. And we are able to make a choice to either go to the physical or to go to the spiritual. The choice that we are able to make because of this tension is what we are. Our free choice defines us as us. And if we look at it more deeply, even the actions that we do are not a part of ourselves. For example, what do I say when I see something? I say, I see, I hear, right? So I am referring to myself as I see, I hear. But is it me that's seeing and hearing? Or is it my body that sees and hears? Do I, do I, I know about the process of seeing. You know, there are photons of light which, which hit the retina cells, which creates an electrical imbalance in the brain, and that, depending on the, the, fre the frequency or the, the level of the imbalance, the brain interprets that as a picture in sight, right? Or I have sound is, the, uh, the sound waves hit the ear, my, my eardrum, and that, that sends a message to my brain, and that's hearing. But do I affect all these things, or do they just happen by themselves? Am I in charge of those things? Am I in charge of the mechanical system that takes place that when I take a piece of food into my mouth, do I tell my body to, dig to extract the, 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 the saliva and to begin the digestive process which will, which, will, which will take place in my stomach and everywhere else in my body? I don't. It just happens by itself. I'm not in control of that. That's not me. Let's take an example. What happens? There's a story with a man who swallowed poison. Right? So he started screaming at his body, stop, stop digesting. Doesn't have any control, can't stop his body from digesting. It happens automatically without him, even if he decides not to. Our body and our actions and our soul are not us because they just function by themselves. What defines us as us is our ability to choose and direct 
not even direct, but to choose to direct our bodies and our soul, our, our bodies or ourselves to go in a particular way. So the question is, what is a human being? Is the human being the body? Is it the soul? Or is it a combination of the two? Jewish tradition says that the human being is the combination of the two. If one would believe that the soul is the most important and the body holds it prisoner, what? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah that, that, that goes without saying because it's a combination of both. But if one would hold, or one would be of the position, is that the soul is the most important, and the body just holds it prisoner, and then this existence would be better if there would be no body. And there are people like that. And what do they do? They punish themselves. They take themselves out of the physical world. They don't eat. They abstain from things. Why? Because the body should be minimized as much as possible to allow the soul to shine because the soul is the most important. But Judaism doesn't hold this way. Judaism holds that the definition of the human being in the optimum existence is the combination of the body and the soul because that's what makes us unique. That's what makes us who we are. Okay, so we are in this this dual universe, and we are this being that has free choice and that can affect things. And that's what, and we find that this entity finds itself in this universe, and we find ourselves in this universe. The question now is, what is life? What do we mean when we say that we are alive? So I'm not a scientist and I'm not uh, here to uh, present a scientific uh, view of the matter. But I will try my best to, uh, to at least use some of science's principles to illustrate uh, the point. First thing is, is that everything that exists in this universe is not still. Everything is constantly moving. Everything moves. When we refer to something as an inanimate object, that is just a relative term. When we say that a rock is inanimate, we mean that it's inanimate in terms of a tree. We don't mean that the rock itself is completely without movement, because we know. And it's self-evident that the rock moves. It's made up of atoms, and the atoms move. And we know that the earth itself is responsible for growth, for nourishment. So it must be that it moves. Trees are self-evident. If you put a tree to a light, it's going to grow in the direction of that light. And over time, you'll see that the tree is going to be bent towards the light. Life is defined by movement. Everything in this universe moves. That, that's what it means that it's alive, at least in the most minimal sense. When we say that something is alive, we say that it moves. The rabbis say 
that every single element has a spirit of life. If you kill a tree, then it's not going and, 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 and it has everything else that it had before, it's not going to live. A tree has a spirit of life in it, that's why it moves. The rabbis also say that all of creation is male and female. And we know this today to be true. Because we know that there are dominant and positive entities, and that are dominant and passive entities, sorry, and that there are positive and negative entities that exist. Everything moves, but all of life is interconnected. It doesn't move independently by itself. Everything is dependent on everything else. A grain of dust contains millions of molecules. And every atom also consists of particles. Everything is dependent and interconnected. All of creation and created entities are governed by some law. It pulls and is being pulled, acts and is being acted upon. Basically, what life is, is a system that is governed by laws and that constantly moves in every direction and is interconnected with itself. Now there are three classes of life. We can categorize life into three classes. First class is, is life that it moves and feels. That's, the, that's the, basically the physical world that we find ourselves in. But it's not conscious of its own existence. Trees are not conscious of their own existence. They don't have an identity, me, I, right? Second type of life is, I guess it's a spiritual life of sorts, is a con conscious intelligent life, but it is devoid of free choice. Can't choose between one thing and another. The third type of life is man, the human being. The human being is a combination of the both, of both. It moves, and it's conscious of its movement, and it is also able to change itself by exercising its free choice. Animals can't change themselves. All animals behave in the same way. Animals are, in, in the way that they act, are not unique. There's no unique specific personality that is created by free choice. Sorry? It could, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm, I was careful to say that they, that the animals don't uh, make themselves unique, do not change their nature by their free choice. Animals might be there might be slight variations in different types of animals, but they don't have, they can't choose between one thing and another, like a human being can. Between one thing and another, they can't choose between evil and, 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 and good animals. They can learn behaviors, they can be trained to elicit certain behaviors, but they can't choose between evil and good. If you say, if you say that a tiger, for example, eats up a person. Right, but if you say that a tiger, for example, eats a person, right? A person finds himself in the wrong place, and the tiger eats that person. Is the reaction of the of the national media going to be that that tiger is evil? We need to put him to death? No. The reaction is going to be it did what it, did what it does. Followed its instinct. It was hungry. It didn't do anything evil. If a person kills another person, then it's already an issue of morality. Morality. Sorry.
Right, but we, we, can, we, can, we kill animals, but my point, my point is not whether we, that, that tigers kill people and that we kill tigers. My point is, is that we don't, a tiger killing a, a, a person is not an issue of morality. We don't say that the tiger is evil when he kills a person. Could be a person who kills an animal, depending on the circumstances, is evil. But a tiger who kills a person is not a, an evil tiger. It's just a tiger. familiar with his, uh, with his um, view. Right. Right. I am not, I'm not uh, saying that exactly. I'm not saying that I think, therefore I am. I am saying that God gave me an ability to choose. And only the ability to choose is, only the ability to choose is what I can say is unique to me. I am saying that there are, there are, there are angels that can, that can think. They can perceive, they can understand, but they can't choose. So I think, therefore I am, doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, the angels do exist, but they're not unique in terms of the fact that they can make a choice, that they have free will. Right, that, that's what I'm saying, essentially, yes. Essentially, that's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah, you can definitely learn from animals. You can learn from their behavior. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. My, my only point is, is that they don't have free choice. They're not, they're, we, we, don't have a we don't have a judgment system. We don't have a court of law where we bring... What? Uh, okay, well, we're going to have to save this for a separate class. I apologize. But look, you know, I can, I can create a robot and, com and, and put it into a, a computer chip that will command it to do certain things. And it's going to make mistakes when it does those things. It won't 100% always be successful. But it doesn't mean that the robot has, a, it, it has a free choice. I'm not saying that an animal is a robot. All I'm just saying is that a person is unique from animals in the fact that God gave them free choice. They are able to choose between good and evil while animals can't. That's all. Okay. So this is basically life. This is the universe that we find ourselves in. Now, next point is, there is no such thing as absolute destruction. The same way that God created the universe, from nothing to something, we cannot change any part of the universe from something to nothing. We cannot destroy any part of the universe in any way. This is illustrated by, and forgive my French, I don't, can't, don't know the pronunciation of this professor. Perhaps maybe he can help me out. The person who is known as the, the father of chemistry, I think it's Antoine Laurent Levasseur, he was the one who came up with the theory of the law of conservation in 1771. And the law of conservation says that the mass, or he proved, that the mass of the product in a reaction are equal to the mass of the reactants. Meaning that if you take something and you burn it, you have not destroyed it. The terminology that we say that something is destroyed is not 100% correct. What you have done is you have changed it to a different form. It still will retain, if you do an experiment like this, this fellow did, like this, this, this uh, scientist did, you will find that the mass of the reactant 
to what you did is equal to the reaction. If you take a candle, and if it's possible, this is impossible, take a candle and you, and you, you uh, burn a candle inside a bottle, which you can't do because there's not enough oxygen. But assuming that there would be enough oxygen and the candle will burn until it's just gas left in the, in the bottle, the bottle is going to weigh the same amount. It's going to have equal mass. You have not destroyed the candle. All you have done is just changed its form. There's no such thing as destroying something. You can't. By melting, dry, drying up, or burning up, it's not possible. Existence is indestructible. Whatever ceases to exist in our eyes merely sheds one form. It merely sheds one form and assumes another. All elements with their mass remain. The same is true with energy. Energy as well. And what I mean by energy is not anything that's matter. The energy that's, or the, the forces which, let's say, hold a, a molecule, uh, an atom together. Energy, or any force, or even speech, sound, lights, syllables, everything that we say can never be destroyed. It always exists. For example, this could be illustrated a little bit. When we take a picture with a camera, we are recording sound waves that are already out there. And those sound waves continue to exist. They don't cease to exist, they continue to exist. I'm sorry, not sound waves, I meant photons, light, right? When we hear a sound, when Thomas Edison created the, the, the uh, invented the phonograph, we're able to record sounds. There are sound waves that we can record. The sound waves that we produce continue to exist. Let's give another example. The light that we see in the sky at night, from the stars that we see, that light is millions of years old. The light waves continue to travel for millions of years until they come to us and we see them. In the form of a star. That when we first look at them when we're childlike, we say, hey look, there's a star. And all we see is a light that came to us millions of year, in, in millions of years. Is the point? Yeah. Scientists have said, I have an article here which I really must admit that I didn't understand. Scientists say that they have instruments with which they can detect the sound that was made at the time of the Big Bang. When the universe was created, it created a sound. Scientists can show and can detect the sound that's there from the Big Bang and what effects it has had and what it became and how it changed since then. Another example. There is what is called the butterfly effect. There was a, a scientist by the name of Edward Lorenz who in 1972 at a meeting of American Association for Advancement of Science in Washington, D.C. gave a talk. And the talk was entitled Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's, wing, a butterfly, butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? He proceeded to show mathematically that when a butterfly flaps its wings, the effect that's created can set off a tornado in another part of the world. Not, the point is, is that there's nothing that goes to waste. Not matter, not energy, not sounds, not light. Everything continues to exist. Once God placed the universe into existence, it is not going to be destroyed until He decides that it should be destroyed. The same goes for the choices that we make and the personality that we present. 
The same way that our movements are eternal by the reflection of sound and light. So do the choices that we make and the individual personality that's created, the energy that's there from our choices continues to exist forever. It's indestructible. It can never cease to exist. Can I come back? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Trees have a spirit that gives them life. They don't have a soul like a human being does. Sort of like, not as an advanced machine, you know. It's, it, but, it's, but they do have something which gives them life. Not just, not just form and mobility. Sorry? Not just form and mobility. Right, otherwise they wouldn't, what makes them move? What makes them move? What are the forces that hold them together? A spirit. It's a, a spiritual fight. So basically, if we come to this point of understanding, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we mean by that? The perception when we came into this room and we wanted to hear what happens to us when we die, and what we perceive as death is ceasing of existence. And there are those that say that. There are those that say that we live and then we cease to exist and we never exist again. Right, that's exactly my point. But I'm just saying it that it's even more, it's true even in a, in a scientific sense. It's true in even, even a more hands-on sense. Not only do our memories and our, and our personalities live in other people, right, but also our actions exist independently of those people and continue to exist. Now, the, the, the truth is, I don't know exactly how this is connected between the spiritual and the physical realm. But the point is, is that we see from here that we continue to exist and live on. What is then death? What do we mean when we say that we're going to die? So death is the process common to all organisms that when a period of integrated existence ends. Which means to say is, that death is when we cease to exist as what we defined as a human being. When we cease to exist as a combination of the body and the soul. When the soul sheds the body and the body begins to take on another form, it rots and takes on another form, doesn't cease to exist, takes on another form, the soul then separates from the body. That's what we mean by death. That soul which has the impressions of a lifetime of choices upon it, separates from this combination, from this clothing, from this entity called the body, and then takes on a new spiritual, spiritual body, as uh, it is written in the mystical writings. That is what we define as death. Death is when we cease to be human. Death is when we cease to be able to make free choices. There is no tension anymore between the body and the soul and we don't, we can't choose between good and evil or whatever it is. We can only exist as a soul. What? Right? 
Right, so the spirit, so according to Jewish tradition, once you're a soul and you don't have a body, you can't make a choice anymore. Because what facilitates your ability to make a free choice is the combination, the tension that's created between the one entity of the combination of body and soul. Okay. The story of the near-death experience you're talking about, the soul is making, uh, would you consider that to continue to resuscitate or we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to intimately discuss, I'm not going to leave that story. That story was not for illustration. We're going to discuss that, those stories in more detail. But, uh, the, no, the soul can't, according to Jewish tradition, the soul cannot make a free choice. It cannot, it can only observe, understand, have intelligence, have memories of the impressions that, the, the, uh, and the impressions that were made when it was in a body, but it cannot actually choose between good and evil. And this is what we say, in Jewish tradition, when somebody dies, and a person is present at the moment of death, there are certain things that one says, certain, uh, um, I guess, um, verses that one says, and one tears one's clothing, and the term that is used when we say that somebody has died is Yitzhiyas Nishama. Yitzhiyas Nishama is translated as the exit of the soul from the body. Halacha, Jewish law, has a definition of death. The ramifications, which, uh, uh, which the, the, that discussion of what the definition of death halakhically, of Jewish law, is beyond the scope of this class. But the ramifications of which being is, or are, is how we treat a person after he is dead. When can we start to start the process of burial? There is a specific definition in Jewish law. But that definition of Jewish law, of when we say that a person is dead, is an estimation of when the soul has left the body. That's what it is. So, the soul has an eternal existence. Internable. I'm sorry? Internable. Internable. So that it doesn't terminate. Is that right? Right. The, the uh, decay and changing from one form to another is a physical thing. So the body does that, but the spirit does not. The spiritual world exists in time, but it doesn't exist in materialism. Like we said, we can't perceive the spiritual world with our sensory perceptions. Why? Because it doesn't exist in the material world. It's not material. It only exists in time. So therefore the body is not going to rot. I'm sorry, the soul is not going to rot when the body rots. All the soul is going to do is just going to take on another form in, the spiritual, in that spiritual dual universe that exists with the physical universe and the body will rot. But we will soon see, hopefully if we have a chance, th th this discussion in Judaism is very long and uh, uh, basically is ingrained in every, in every aspect of Judaism. And if we have a chance in the next coming classes we will discuss reincarnation. That the concept of the fact that the soul actually does come back with the body. Come back to the soul again? Yeah, to, to, its, body, or to, to its body. Yeah. So we were going to discuss that. What? Oh, I, I'm not sure of the, uh, of the detail. I don't, I don't know if... That's a good question. We're going to discuss... We, we, uh, we will in the future classes discuss that, that those issues. Yeah, that's right. It is, it is an, an, an integral part of, uh, of, of Judaism that there is reincarnation. It has to be. I'll tell you why. We began the class by saying that if there is no reward and punishment, then we don't matter then God doesn't care. Same way with a child. Right? 
So now, if you think about it, if there is no reincarnation, then there can't be any reward and punishment. Why not? Because you cannot punish or reward the soul for what it did together with the body. Like we said, what comprises ourselves is our soul and our body. The human being is the soul and the body, the combination of the two. When the soul leaves the body, it can't be punished or rewarded because it's not, it's not what it was. What, what, the, act, the, the, the punishment or the reward that you give it is not it. You're speaking, you're, you're speaking of relating to a different entity. And you can't, you can't punish the, or reward the body either because the body, the, the body didn't do anything without the soul. You can only relate or have consequences to a person's actions only when they are in a combination of the soul and the body together. So in order to have reward and punishment, you have to have reincarnation. You have to have that the soul and the body come back together. Because otherwise, like we said, we don't matter. And God cares about us. We do matter. Our actions make a difference. So this basically concludes tonight's discussion. And we can now begin to address the issues of what does Judaism have to say about the afterlife? What happens to us when we die? And what does the scientific world have to say about it? And is the scientific world consistent with the view of Judaism? Yes. I did not say that. Although I do not deny that that could be possible. Because we have a lot more people than we did, you know, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And that says? And that's it? So we have more people? We have more people, so we have more souls being born at the same time. I mean, theoretically possible. Theoretically speaking, and this is the truth, this is Jewish tradition, God created souls and then he put them in bodies. So each time, each time that there's a new body, there could be a new soul. But... We exchange energy with other souls, but we only see our soul. You know, when we, you know, wherever we go, we go to each other. Well, we'll discuss that. We'll discuss that. We'll discuss that. There are all kinds of different issues. Transmigration of the soul. There, there are issues of whether, whether a soul can come back and reincarnate in another body. There are, there are issues of, of whether or not um, um, whether a person has, has lived, uh, or the same thing, lived past lives. There are issues on whether or not a soul can take over another soul, which is already sojourned in another body, which in Judaism is called a dibuk. What? No, I mean take over, hostile takeover. <laughs> I mean, there are issues of possibilities of the fact another soul can take over another, another body which already has a soul in it. But we will, dis- we will discuss all these things. But we have to go one step at a time. Sort of like that, yeah. We'll discuss if that is possible, if, 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 if there's such a thing. You mean you're not going to be, if someone's soul comes into you, you're not going to be you have to work with two souls to become one? No, a body, a, body, a body essentially is clothing, right? I'm wearing a suit. I'm wearing a suit. So the, body, the, the, the soul wears a body, right? A soul can wear a body. It's like a spacesuit. We have a soul inside of us and we have a body. So the body 
The soul is contained in the body, wherever it is. It's like clothes. Right. I'm saying is that your, your body is the clothing for your soul. Your body is the clothing for your soul. Inside your body, there's a soul. Right. So what I'm saying is, is that we're going to discuss if there's such a thing as a possibility of a competition between two souls for one body. But you already have this soul. I mean, there's another Right. So we're going to discuss if there's a possibility of something like that. But if your, your soul is developing and forming a game like that, why would you say something so? We'll discuss it. We'll discuss it. There, it's I possible. I mean, everybody sees a different world and everybody sees different things. Right. Right. That's true. If you're developing your soul, I would make you think that you're not giving yourself that credit. Uh, well, I, I didn't say, I didn't okay. say that no one's giving it. I'm, that, that, that's a good point. It's a valid point, and we'll, we'll discuss whether it's possible. Perhaps, maybe it's not. Right? In, in Jewish tradition, just to, you know, it, yeah. You see, you see your past, your president, and you know the going future. I think that it's just a beautiful, miracle life, and nobody's like anybody else. So I would, you know, I would protect. There's a lot of things that I wouldn't want to happen to me. But I'm not always in control of everything that happens around me. Right, but there's a lot of things that I don't necessarily want to happen to me, and they'll happen to me anyway. Okay, I, I agree. The next point, the next point of the discussion before 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 we uh, before we finish is going to be now now that we have defined who we are, where we are, what do you, what what do we mean by by dying? The next point of the discussion is what do we expect to experience immediately after we die? What is it that we are going to experience? What are we going to see, quote unquote? What are we going to hear? What's going to happen to us immediately after our soul departs from our body? By the way, you're absolutely right. If there is an afterlife, why are we having a discussion? Why? Just out of curiosity of what happens to us after we die? No, you're absolutely right. The reason why we're having this discussion is because we want to know that we matter. We want to know that what we do makes a difference. And the only way that what we do makes a difference is only if, there, if, we, if there's an afterlife and God comes to us afterwards and says, you made a difference to me. You made a difference in what you did. Because if we cease to exist, then it doesn't matter. So you're right. The discussion about what happens after life is really about what is our life about, what does it mean, and what should we do about it. Okay, so we'll continue next week.